on uh, Monday night, I had the chance to catch up with a couple of colleagues. And uh, they're in, uh, two of my good buddies from j they were in town for the national meeting, and it's when all the directors and managers get together. And we go out for appetizers. And pretty quickly into the conversation, I mean, we're like not even to where we're going. We're in the truck still. We get onto the conversation of careers. Inevitably, we get to when they're going to make the next move, what the next move is going to be, how to set themselves up for it, that whole line of conversation. As I was noting the similarities between the two of them, I really quickly realized it's succession planning season. If y'all are in anybody in corporate America or has been around corporate America, it's succession planning season is this time where employees sit down with their managers and they talk about how their careers are going to go over the next 5, 10, 15 years. And then the manager and the employee sits down and they lay out all the opportunities. They talk about how to navigate them. They talk about how to set themselves up to move over to the right ladder that they want to climb up. But it's really this conversation about how to navigate the power and wisdom of the world. How do you move inside a a system that's moving and shaking a lot? And see, this this, uh, conversation happening in corporate America, it's not new. It's uh, been going on for thousands of years, maybe longer than that. If you flip back to the, uh, the church in Corinth in the first century um, of the, basically of the church, Corinth is this little city uh, that sits right at the crossroads of global commerce. So in first century AD, if you wanted to go anywhere in Greece from north to south, you had to go through Corinth. If you wanted to ship anything from the east part of the world to the west or the west part of the world to the east, these ships would come along and then eventually they would hit this little isthmus, this little peninsula, and they faced a choice. They could sail 200 miles around or you could pull into port on one side, take all the cargo, unload it, carry it four miles across land and then put it in a ship on the other side. It's real obvious what they would choose to do. They'd pull into port on one side, unload the stuff, carry it across the land and put it on the other side. Well, Corinth sat right at the middle of the road across that land. And so what that meant is every single day, day after day, week after week, year after year, the newest products, the newest opportunities, the newest ideas would come through this little town of Corinth. And so if you lived in Corinth, and frankly, if you were part of the church in Corinth, every single day you faced both the power of the world and the wisdom of the world coming through your living room, coming through your town square, coming through wherever it is that you did life. And so if you were going to follow Jesus living in Corinth in the first century, you had to figure out how to navigate power and wisdom. How are you going to respond to the human uh, pursuit of power and wisdom? So we're going to take a look at that question this morning. But um, before we can answer that question, we have to first root ourselves in how does God respond to human power and wisdom. So we've been in the middle of a sermon series called Christ Crucified, where every week we're taking a look at a different aspect of the cross. And as Keith has been saying, it's kind of like a diamond. We turn it every week and look at a little different facet. This week, we're going to take a look at how the cross of Christ is power. And again, we're answering the question, how does God respond to the human or uh, power and wisdom of the world? So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31. If you don't have a Bible, the text is included at the top of the sermon guide. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, that is righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So again, we're answering the question, how does God respond to human power and wisdom? And to answer that, the first point we're going to take a look at is how the cross of Christ God uses to thwart man's independence. So if you're um, going to understand what's happening both in America today, but also happening inside Corinth 2,000 years ago, you got to start way back at the beginning. And by the beginning, I mean like creation. Right, so the first couple of chapters of the Bible, even the first couple of books, they teach that man was designed specifically to flourish in dependence on God. And that in the dependence he would have on God, that God himself would be glorified. But then also goes on to say that very early in the story, our very first parents, discontent with what God had given them, decides to attempt independence. They decide that they want life apart from God. And what happens? they naturally fall into the curse of decay and toil and ultimately death. So listen, before I say anything else, if you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. In God's economy, dependence leads to life and independence leads to death. I'll say it again. In God's economy, dependence leads to life and independence leads to death. So this uh, natural uh, human pursuit of independence that began with our very first parents, as human history unfolded, it, it didn't stop, it just evolved. We got more and more sophisticated at it until you get to the time when Paul's writing this letter to the church in Corinth, he names two expressions of that independence. So if you flip to verses 22 and 23, he, the two that he names are seeking and demanding. He specifically says that Jews demand signs, or that is demonstrations of power, and that Greeks seek wisdom. See, the thing that was going on is uh, the Jews really, really wanted a military Messiah to come, kick out the Romans, and give the nation back to them. See, in other words, the Jews had perspective on how you would take life for yourself. They thought that power is how you would go and get what it is that you wanted. But then on the flip side, Greeks, they, didn't, they weren't so concerned with power as they were with things needed to sound smart. 
They were sophisticated. They had to make sense. And they had this priority on things that were new or things that were novel. See, the the thing with Greeks is while Jews had a perspective on how to take life for yourself, Greeks had perspective on what life was. They would define it for themselves. And so the thing that's interesting about it is neither of these are really Jewish or Greek issues. They're human issues. That deep down in, the, in our heart, beginning way back at our very first parents, we decided to attempt life in independence. And then as we do that, we set up uh, these opportunities for life apart from God. And we either try to take it for ourselves or define what it is. And if you're thinking about where we're at today in America, it's not entirely different. We don't um, necessarily demand miracles like the Jews did. And we're not probably as into philosophy as like Plato and Aristotle and all those guys were. But we demand and we seek. We demand our house be a certain size. We demand that uh, our kids go to a certain school. We demand that we get the exact right job at the exact right time. And even if we don't say it out loud, we demand it inside our heart. And then we seek after things. We, we seek for more money. We seek for more comfort. We seek for uh, the, the right situation for our future and how to set ourselves up for retirement or whatever it is, the goal that you have. We see in each of these instances, what it is is the human heart is working towards independence. We're trying to stand up life apart from God. So I want you to remember the, the thing we started with, that independence leads to death and dependence leads to life. So how does God respond to the independence of man or man's pursuit of, of power and wisdom? Uh, if you flip to verses 19 and 27, you'll catch a couple of words. It says that uh, he thwarts, he destroys. And the, the, the ESV uses the word shame, but it also means to expose. It says that God intentionally works to rescue us from our independence. I appreciate the way uh, John Calvin says it. I know it's a PCA church, so I'm quoting John Calvin, but I thought y'all would like it. Um, it says, God acted in such a manner as to take away all merit from human wisdom and power and glory to eradicate from man's mind a, a misdirected confidence in the flesh. See, the first way that God responds to man's attempts at independence is to thwart it but it's in an attempt to rescue us from it. And so he does that in two ways. The first way that he does it, frankly, is he doesn't allow it to flourish. There's been no man in the history of the world who's been able to satisfy his own heart apart from God. And there's been no man who's ever been able to cheat death. That eventually all the things that we pursue after, at some point they will fail us. But then he goes further in the second way that the Lord works to rescue us from our independence is he chooses a specific mechanism of salvation called the cross of Christ that appears foolish and appears weak. And so if you think about that for a second, why in the world, in the, in the, the, uh, the grand plan of God from eternity past to eternity future, why would he rescue mankind through a man who looks like a crucified criminal? It's because we're addicted to power and we're addicted to wisdom. 
And see, if, if the salvation of God came through the wisdom of man or through the power of man, it would be so natural for us to want to pursue it and to stay stuck in our attempts at independence. So what God does is he sends a, a mechanism of salvation that shifts the eyes of our heart off of ourselves and onto him. You tracking with me? God intentionally chooses the cross of Christ because it appears to be foolish and weak. See, he's working to, to rescue us from our independence. So I'll give you an example. Uh, most nights or a lot of nights, Caleb will come to me and he goes, Dada, and then he'll pause. I'll go outside and look for alligators. You stay here. And I always have to say, no, buddy, you can't go outside on your own. But why is that? Is it because I'm being selfish or jealous or insecure? The reason I say no, buddy, is because it's dark outside and right next to my front yard is a road. And the unique thing about three-year-olds is they're not designed to be left alone at night in the dark. See, in other words, Caleb's independence is no good for him. And that's how it is with us and God. That our independence leads to death, but our dependence leads to life. And so in uh, his pursuit of us, in his rescue of us, the very first thing that the Lord does is work to deliver us from our independence. So what about you? If you had to take an honest inventory of yourself, what is it that you're demanding, maybe of God or of other people? What is it that you're seeking after? And after you have that list, just take a look at it and ask yourself honestly, are there ways that you're pursuing life apart from Christ? See, 1 Corinthians 1, what it teaches us is that in his great mercy and also in his glory, that God works to deliver us from our independence and that he chooses the cross of Christ specifically because it appears to be weak and foolish, but he does it to rescue us. And so if he doesn't allow our independence to flourish, if we're not able to go have life on our own, what does he do? Does he leave us uh, just stuck in our sin? Does he abandon us to hopelessness? Or is there some other part to the story? And to answer that, we're going to have to flip to the next point. And we're going to take a look at how the cross of Christ restores us to union. Now, word union is intentional, but it's another way of saying, we're going to take a look at how the cross of Christ restores us to dependence. Again, remember, independence leads to death. Dependence leads to life. So flip with me real fast to, to uh, get back to verses 22 to 23. Paul begins by uh, calling out two human worldviews. He said, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. He, he's setting up this, like, he, here's the options for humanity's uh, attempts at salvation. But then he immediately draws a contrast to that. And it's interesting to note the contrast that he, that he uses. He says, we preach Christ crucified. See, that word preach, it doesn't so much mean to teach or to persuade it doesn't, it's not as much to do with like what I'm doing right now, the way that we use the word today. In the Greek, that word actually means to announce or to proclaim. It's the kind of word that you would use for news. So if y'all are watching uh, March Madness right now, it's like when the special news bulletin interrupts it. You know, we interrupt this regularly scheduled program to bring you this special news bulletin. That's the word that Paul's using there. He's saying that in contrast, 
to human philosophy, Christ crucified is news. And if I'm you right now, I'm like, what are you talking about? And why does that matter? Why does it matter that the mechanism of salvation that God chooses is news rather than philosophy? Well, it matters for these reasons. First, if it's news, if you're hearing it, it means it doesn't depend on you. See, the people who do the news are the ones who get interviewed. The people who hear the news aren't the ones who do it. Your salvation isn't accomplished by you, it's accomplished by someone else. The second reason it matters that it's news is that it's past tense. You don't hear about news before it happens, you hear about it after it happens. What that means is that your salvation is already accomplished. It's a finished work. That something was already done for you and to you and that thing is already accomplished. It's already finished. But my favorite part, probably the most significant, the third reason it's news is this. It's real. Human philosophy is simply conjecture. But news is a historical reality. It's something that is actually accomplished and been affected in the world. I mean, it literally means that something is true of you right now. So I'll give you an example. Let's say uh, you owe the bank $800,000 and you got 30 days to pay it. And out of a deep uh, compassion and desire for you, your friend comes along and, and they give you a book. And that book is how to make a million dollars in two weeks. It's not gonna work. But then out of even deeper desire for you, another friend comes along and he gives you a book for how to make $1.1 million in two weeks. Then along comes a third friend and he loves you better than the other ones. And his book is how to take over the bank and kick out the CEO. But then along comes a fourth friend. And this fourth friend doesn't hand you a book. He hands you a bank statement. And you look at the bank statement and you notice the bank statement's your bank statement. And on that bank statement is a billion dollars. Way more than the 800,000 that you owe to the bank. See, the question in that moment is not whether you agree with your fourth friend. The question in that moment is whether you believe him or not. The question is whether or not you view what he did as real news or fake news. Right? See, that's how the cross of Christ is. That's what Paul's saying here is that Christ crucified is news. It's a historical reality already done on your behalf. And the reason that matters is it's not a system that you come to agree with or master or learn. And sure, there's wisdom in the Christian life, but ultimately it's a question of whether you believe it or not. So remember that God at first is working uh, to separate us from our independence. And then he's working to restore us to dependence. And the way that he does that is he does something for us. He does it so that all we do is we end up just believing it or not. And by believing it, let me just clarify. It means whether you operate out of the truth of it. Well, all the time we use the word as if it were true. That's a, that's a like quiet way of saying it's not really true. It literally means operating out of the truth of it. So the bank analogy the way you demonstrate that you believe your friend is you go pay the bank. And then you live out of the excess of the other $999 million and you thank your friend. 
the evidence that you don't believe him is you don't operate out of the bank statement that he gave you, right? So what's this news? And the real question about Christ crucified as news is, is it any good? So we've already been talking this morning about how our uh, sin and the sin of our original parents and the sin of our parents is a historical reality, is something that actually happened. And this sin, it's been unfolding for a couple thousand years. And if you're honest, it probably unfolded on the way to church this morning. But the thing about our sin is that historically, it actually left you separated from God. Like we're not able to live the life we were designed to live. We're also guilty of rebellion. And then frankly, we don't have a way out. We don't have a way of solving the problem for ourselves. It means that literally outside of Christ, as you sit in history, you are separated from the one you were designed for. But again, remember God is working to restore you to dependence. So what does he do? The news is, is that God himself, about 2,021 years ago, stepped into creation in the man Jesus. For about 33 years, he lived a perfect, flourishing, obedient life. He was sinless. He healed people. He taught people. He worked to restore the outcasts of society. He even raised the dead. The dude even walked on water. And then somewhere, what we believe, and the dates are a little fuzzy, but on a Friday in early April, 30 AD, what we think might be April the 7th, the men who followed Jesus closely betrayed him and abandoned him. And they hand him over to the men who hated him. And then those men who hated him, they interrogate him, they beat him, then they nail him to a piece of wood and they hang him outside of the city of Jerusalem. And somewhere towards the end of that day, as the sun's about to go down, Jesus dies. That's a historical fact. That this man who we say lived a perfect, obedient, flourishing life, who people followed, actually died outside the city of Jerusalem. And then two men who followed him quietly, they come and they quietly take his body and they put it in a tomb and then they go back home and they spend the weekend trying to figure out what just happened. And then April the 9th comes around, Sunday morning. And a few women go to the tomb of Jesus and as they get there, they, they see that the tomb is open and the body's gone. And at this point, they're completely convinced that someone has come and taken the body of Jesus. And so naturally, what they do is they turn and they go to look for the body of Jesus. And as they turn, they see Jesus standing there. The man is actually risen from the dead, like in the flesh, talking to them, able to hug them. And then somewhere over the next 40 days on several occasions, he uh, appears to the men who'd been following him for the last few years. And then somewhere around the third week of May, 30 AD, while standing on top of a hill, Jesus turns to his disciples, gives them a couple last instructions, and then ascends back to heaven. You probably ask the question, why would Jesus do all that? If he's God, and God stepped into creation, why would it go down that way? It would go down that way for these reasons. 
you can't live a perfect life. In your independence, you have separated, and I have separated myself from dependence. Independence can't restore you to dependence. So what does he do? God himself, in the pursuit of us to reestablish union and reestablish dependence, comes and lives as a human a very perfect, full, flourishing life. And then in this thing that we call the great exchange, the life and obedience and righteousness of Jesus is given to us. But then as it's given to us, our sin and our rebellion and our guilt is given to Christ. I mean, in a real historical way, I want you to remember at this point that the reason we talked first about preaching being news is because this is a historical fact. Your sin has been given to Jesus. It's kind of like this. When Jen and I got married, legally, what was mine became hers. And legally, what was hers became mine. See, it's like that in the great exchange, in union with Christ, all of his righteousness, all of his obedience, all of his life becomes yours. But the flip side of that coin is all of your sin and your rebellion becomes his. Well, now it makes sense. What does he do with it? The man picks it up. He heads to Jerusalem and there he gets betrayed, abandoned, interrogated, beaten, killed. In the cross of Christ, the power of God is he was restoring you to dependence on him. And one of the ways he's doing it is by bearing the physical, relational, psychological, emotional wrath of God that separated you, that was stored up for you. But then the story doesn't stop there. Two days later, he rises from the dead. And in rising from the dead, what Jesus does is he guarantees for you and for me, for those who believe in him, that a day is coming, like mark it on the calendar. I can't tell you what day it is, but there will be a calendar day when you physically rise from the dead. And on that day, when you rise from the dead, you will inherit the new creation that Jesus Christ brings with him. So what I want you to hear this morning, and I know I'm elaborating on it, but it's for a reason, is the cross of Christ is news. It's a historical fact. Let me say it to you more directly. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, historically, none of this matters. What we're doing this morning is entirely futile. We're stuck in our sins. But if Jesus actually died, actually rose from the dead, it, it, meaning the historical reality of the great exchange went down, then everything changes. It means that right now, you are already righteous. Like, not kind of righteous, a magic trick where God looks at you and he kind of, it means you are actually righteous. Historically, the life and obedience of Jesus has been given to you. And it also means that if you believe this, that your sin not just like a magic trick, isn't there anymore. It's actually been dealt with. It's why Jesus died. That your sin and your rebellion has already been dealt with. But it means more than that. It means that today, as you sit here right now, if you believe that, already resurrection has been purchased for you. Like remember all those things about news, they're accomplished for you, but they're past tense. It's already been accomplished. 
your resurrection has already been accomplished. The question is just whether you believe it or not. So what about you? When you think about the gospel, when you think about Christ crucified, do you tend to approach it as a philosophy, as a system that you have to learn and master and agree with? Or do you tend to view it as news? Do you tend to view the great exchange as a historical reality where you're already righteous and your sin is already dealt with and that resurrection is coming? Jesus Christ is going to return. So we've been talking this morning about how in the cross of Christ, God responds to the power and wisdom of the world and that he first does it by thwarting our attempts at independence and that's in his desire and his mercy to rescue us. But then he works to restore us to dependence and he does it in the cross. He does it by doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. But it raises the question, what does the cross of Christ create? And we're gonna see that the cross of Christ creates two things. Well, in summary, it creates a new people. So if you flip back to verses 22 and 23, I know we're camping out there this morning, but uh, right after Paul says that uh, Greeks seek wisdom, he uses these two little words, we and preach. And so what's interesting about those two words is it uh, defines an identity shift that happens. If you flip back to verse 18, what you'll see is that uh, Paul says that, the, that Christ crucified, while it creates a vertical identity shift, meaning we no longer see ourselves as the enemy of God, but as a child of God. We no longer see ourselves as hostile, but as heirs, that flowing out of that, it shifts our, historic, our, our horizontal identity. What I mean by that is it shifts the way that we view and relate to other people. And verse 18 says that it takes all of our divisions, all of our labels, all the ways that we uh, name one another, like American or un-American, Democrat, Republican, uh, Presbyterian or Baptist, tall or short, rich or poor, black, white, red, yellow, pick your label. It says it takes all of those labels and collapses them down into two categories. Those who are being saved and those who are perishing. The cross of Christ divides humanity into two people. Those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And it says that those who are being saved are those who believe and those who are perishing are those who don't believe. And so let's take a look at how the cross of Christ causes us to respond horizontally. And the first word it, uh, Paul uses is we. He says that as we uh, accept, as we come to believe the news about uh, the great the historical great exchange, that we turn back out into the world and by grace, we come to see other people who the same thing is true of. And then as we see them, we come to realize that the very core of our new identity we have in common. And so it moves us from uh, viewing ourselves as a dispersed group of individuals to seeing ourselves as a collective, to seeing ourselves as a we. And the reason that's important is it does two things. The first thing it does is it gives us the capacity to relate to people who aren't like us. So what the cross of Christ does is it takes people who otherwise are completely different and it knits them together in Jesus. 
And then as these people move closer to each other, they begin to share life with one another. And by sharing life, I don't just mean I tell you about it. Like I tell you about my schedule and what's happening, but it means they actually begin to participate in one another's lives. In an eerie way, almost as if they're living one another's lives. They begin to bear one another's burdens. If you've experienced this, you know what it's like. You begin to cry one another's tears and pray one another's prayers. You begin to raise one another's children and you cook one another's meals and you move one another's boxes. You celebrate one another's joys. You mourn one another's losses. See, the thing about the cross of Christ is it takes us from a group of individual eyes to a we, to a community. If you're in the room this morning and you look around and anyone in here has ever brought you a meal or you've ever taken a meal to someone else, you've experienced the beginning of this little Christ crucified we. Or if you've ever watched someone else's kids or had yours watch, that means as basic as if you've ever worked the nursery or put your kids in the nursery, you've begun to experience the we that the cross of Christ creates. But then Paul doesn't stop there. He moves to the second category of humanity, those who are perishing. And after he says we, he uses the second word preach. And we already talked about what the word means. It means news. But what's interesting about what Paul's saying here is he says, the first thing that the cross of Christ does is it creates a we, but then the mark of that we is they share the news. So I want you to think about what you do with philosophy. Think about the last uh, good nonfiction book you read. Do you share that stuff? Y'all don't share that stuff. I don't share that stuff. I mean, maybe, but it's not the kind of thing that you just wear on your sleeve. But think about news. What's the last major event that you witnessed? And how easily did you go and turn and share that with someone else? I remember when the Olympics were going on, I had just come on staff at the church and every night somebody would do something crazy. I mean, it's the Olympics. Like someone would win a gold medal or break a record. And eventually in the morning, the conversation would always come to, hey, did you see so-and-so or X, Y, Z? Did you see what happened? So that's the way it is with news is news is something that you share naturally. But who do you share it with? Do you share it with people who agree with you or disagree with you? With people who are like you or dislike you, who live where you live or don't live where you live? Share with rich people or do you share with poor people? None of those categories apply to sharing news. The people you share news with are the people who haven't heard the news. So that's what Paul's saying here is he says, not only does the cross of Christ create a we, but then it gives to that we a new mission. It gives to that we a new purpose. If you've, uh, if you've been around Christ Church East for very long, I mean, even just a couple of weeks, you've heard us talk about cultivating gospel-centered community that multiplies. That's a really fancy way of saying Christ-crucified we's. See, this reality, the historical reality of the great exchange, the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead is why we multiply community groups. It's why we plant churches. We believe that as uh, these little Christ crucified we's, these little communities that are formed out of the news of the cross move into neighborhoods, they take the news with them. And as they take the news with them, new people come to hear the news. And by grace, some of those people come to believe the news. See, Jesus Christ in the cross 
of Christ through his church, through the little Christ crucified we, is building his kingdom. He's restoring people to himself through not philosophy, but news. So what about you? Community group leaders, I'll just get at you for a second. Think about your groups. Is the center of them Christ crucified? Or is there some other affinity that's connecting you guys? And then community groups. All those of you that are in one of these little Christ crucified we's. Have you shared the news with your neighbor? And by that, I don't mean awkwardly. I mean honestly and urgently. Maybe with words, maybe with your life, maybe with the evidence of your community. And then members, are you in a community group? Are you part of one of these little we's that the cross of Christ creates? See, we looked this morning at how uh, God responds to the power and wisdom of the world in the cross of Christ. And in it, he does a couple of things because our independence leads to death. He first works to rescue us from our independence. But then in the cross of Christ, he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And he's working to restore us to dependence. See, while human power and wisdom are pursuing life, but nothing ever happens, God actually steps down into history and does something for real about it. He actually begins to remake the world. And then as he begins to remake the world, he begins to create a new people. And he gives to that new people a mission. And so what I want to leave you with this morning is just a really simple question. Do you believe the news? If you're here this morning and you believe the news of the resurrection of Christ, of the historical reality of the great exchange. And what does it look like for you to live out of it? Are you sharing that news with your neighbor? If you're here this morning and you don't believe the news, then the question is what's holding you back? What's hanging you up? Let's pray. Lord, you are good to us. Father, you, out of your deep mercy and love towards us, were willing to give up your son to rescue us, that in our pursuit of independence, you didn't abandon us, but you worked to restore us to dependence. And Jesus, we thank you that in your great love towards us came and accomplished our salvation, that you came and actually restored us to union, that you restored us to dependence on you. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that even now you're the one who causes us to believe the news, that even now you're the one who causes us to respond to the invitation of the accomplished work of Christ. And Lord, we pray this week that as we move back into our communities, as we move into our neighborhoods, that you give us grace to live out of the news of your resurrection and that you would give us grace to share that news with our neighbors. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.